in that this morning, and all the praise team as well. Thank you. John chapter 2, we continue our study in John's gospel. Glad to see all of you visitors with us this morning. If you're visiting, we're glad you're here. Trust you'll be blessed. John chapter 2. Let's begin at verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken to them. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to come and to worship, and we pray, Lord, that you would bless this this time of preaching of your word. We pray that you would use it to speak to our hearts, draw us ever closer to you, that we might walk with you and glorify you as you deserve. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> now the cleansing of the temple, we've been talking about it for the last couple of times here in John's Gospel. <clears throat> the cleansing of the temple took place in what was known as the Court of the Gentiles. It was a very large area. If you've ever seen, the, if you've ever seen pictures of the top of the Temple Mound in Jerusalem... <clears throat> the uh, the Temple Mound is very large, and on one side of it today sits, stands the the Mosque of Omar, which is the Muslim, uh, the second most important place uh, in Islam, uh, outside of Mecca. <clears throat> to the, on the other side of the mound would have been where the the Temple would have Herod's Temple would have stood. Very large place there. That whole large area outside of the temple proper was called the court of the Gentiles. This was a place where Gentiles could come. Gentiles who were interested in viewing or looking or seeing uh, what the worship of Jehovah looked like. They could enter into this place. No Gentile, however, could enter into the temple Proper, the, the part, the holy place or the holy of holies, a uh, Gentile entered in there, he would certainly die. It was in the court of the Gentiles, that very large outer area, that all this cleansing of the temple as described here in John chapter 2 took place. 
So imagine a Gentile entering in to the temple mount and into the court of the Gentiles. And there he sees this very chaotic, very noisy place where animals are being sold, where people are exchanging money. And he views this and he sees this. How would he recognize it? What would he say about it? Maybe he would think that it was some sort of prosperity gospel or some other misconceived notion of God. Possibly, at the very best, he would be confused as to what was going on. Not unlike some churches today. During the Passover, Jesus went into the temple with his disciples and he saw this chaotic marketeering going on and he drove them all out. The marketeers, the money changers, he drove them out single-handedly for one purpose, to restore reverence to his father's house. It seems, it seems that reverence is that which is missing in many cases among God's people when they gather. And it's certainly not wrong to fellowship and to laugh and to enjoy one another's uh, presence and certainly not wrong to encourage and to uh, to speak of things that concern one another when you come into the church. But we must always remember that this is a place of worship. And when we come here, this building does not really do anything for us except put a roof over our head. We are the church. The people that gather are the church. And the Spirit of God lives and dwells within us. And we must make sure that what we do, how we react, is in accordance with what God has stipulated in His Word. Now when all this was done, it says in verse 17 that His disciples remembered that it was written... Zeal for your house will consume me. This is the fulfillment of Psalm 69, verse 9, which says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This is what Jesus felt as he went in to the temple. The reproaches of God's reverence, against God's reverence, <clears throat> That which he deserved, the attitudes which would show that our that the hearts were bowed before his presence, was missing, <clears throat> and that weighed heavily upon the Lord. And so he did what he did 
to fulfill this passage. Now I want us to look at a couple of a few words found here in verse 17 as as it relates to what Jesus has done cleansing the temple. Notice with me the word written. It is they they remembered it was written. The word written is in the perfect tense. The perfect tense in English just simply says something happened in the past and it's done, completed. But the perfect tense in Greek says that something happened in the past but has ongoing and abiding effects. And so... They, what it's saying is, they believed, as we do, that the Word of God was enduring and that it stood and stands forever. That's what they're saying. They remembered that the Word of God had said this and they related it to what Jesus had just done. In fact, Psalm 19, verse 119 verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. The word of God will never end. It will never, it will never stop. In all eternity, God's word will be there because it is, it has the same characteristics as God Himself. Now notice with me the word zeal. The word zeal is not a word that we use in our modern English very often anymore. We would use the word eager or eagerness. And it means the same thing. The word zeal means red hot passion. Passion is a word that is misunderstood in our time. And it has connotations often that are sexual by definition. So when you say passion, that's what most people think. But passion is anything that consumes a person. That causes a person to act in, in certain ways. It's, it is a heightened emotion. In this case, it was holy emotion. We cannot depend on our emotions to guide our actions because our emotions are fallen and are often laced with sinful self-will. But this was not the case with Jesus. Jesus' emotions were governed by the Holy Spirit and were never anything but pure and perfect. And so His anger and His desire to to bring back the Lord's house to, to what it should be is seen. Notice the, the word remembered. They remembered the scriptures that they had learned. 
It's a good thing to teach children scriptures and to have them memorize scriptures because you never know what God is going to do with those memories later in life. I remember reading a story of a woman in Australia who went on a vacation with her mother to the Philippine Islands. And while she was there, she, he, her and her mother rented one of those uh, outrigger uh, canoes. And they were going to paddle around the island. Well, her mother got tired about halfway around and decided that she would go back to the hotel they were staying in. And so her daughter said, I'll just, I'll just paddle on around and meet you there. Well, as she was paddling, she got caught in a current and it, it dragged her 200 miles out to sea. So here she is in a little single outrigger pontoon type boat in the middle of the ocean and a storm came up. She spent three days, two nights and three days in the middle of the ocean and She wrote a book about all this, the reason I know this. And she said, she was saved actually out in the middle of the ocean on that little boat. And she said the thing that God used to, to bring her to salvation was that she remembered Bible verses that she had memorized as a child. And God used those Bible verses to bring her to salvation. I think this is what's happening here. The the disciples see this happening in the temple. They see Jesus acting, uh, trying to bring back reverence for his father's house. And then they remembered this verse from Psalm 69. And that says two things about them as common, uneducated men... According to Acts chapter 4 verse 13, that's the way the Jews looked at these disciples as common and uneducated. It says two things. One, it says that these men knew the scriptures, at least to some degree they knew the scriptures. They probably had memorized this passage as a child. And now they're seeing it come to fulfillment right before their eyes. Second, it shows that they are able to interpret scriptures rightly. Anyone can interpret the scriptures correctly if they just remember to use correct hermeneutics or rules of interpretation. They saw Jesus literally clear the temple. And they remembered the scripture that said that the Messiah would be consumed with passion for his father's house. And they put the two together. Paul instructed Timothy to make sure that he interpreted scripture Correctly in 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who, who has no need to be ashamed. Rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling it. In other words, interpret it or analyze it properly. That's what right, rightly handling it means. Perhaps by making some appropriate distinctions. 
speaks of cutting, it speaks of cutting something straight, not crooked. Keep it in order. Look at it rightly. And you get the meaning of what God is saying. One last word. Notice the word consumed. It literally means to be eaten up or devoured. It can mean to be destroyed by fire. In fact, it's used that way in Revelation chapter 5 where the two witnesses, it says fire comes out of their mouth and destroys their enemies or devours their enemies. It's translated devoured in that passage. In other words, Jesus was completely engulfed in the eagerness of keeping his father's house clean from the sin and greed of sinful people. And by the way, he's still interested in doing that. God's people are a holy people. And they come together to worship a holy God. That's why when we have the Lord's Supper, we always say, examine yourselves, confess any known sins so that you don't come before the Lord and partake of this meal, this emblematic meal in an unworthy manner. His disciples recognized this and remembered the prophetic word that was spoken. Sometimes, It is absolutely appropriate to be overcome for that which will glorify God the most. We see it it in Scripture many times. For example, when Moses came down from the mount with the tablets, what did he do? He saw the children of Israel in sin, worshiping idol gods, in all kinds of evil activity. And he broke the tablets that God had given him. And he ground them up, made them drink the water. Many of them died, some 20,000. We see Phineas the priest in Numbers 25. And his red-hot passion for the house of God. St. Augustine wrote and said this, Let the zeal of the house of God ever eat thee. For example, now this is his words, and he gives some examples. Seest thou a brother running to the theater? Now he's not talking about a movie theater. He's talking about a place where people went and watched people kill each other. You've heard of gladiators. Those games that the Romans played. He says, seest seest a man running to the, your brother running to a theater? Stop him. Warn him. Be grieved for him. If the zeal of God's house hath now eaten thee. See others running and wanting to drink themselves drunk? Stop whom you can. Hold whom you can. Frighten, frighten whom you can. And whom you can win in gentleness. Do not in any way sit still and do nothing. Sometimes it's appropriate to be overcome 
by that which brings God the most glory. When Jesus cleansed the temple, he in essence declared war on the religious Jews and the Jewish leaders. And they never forgot this assault on the center of their religious system. This, coupled with his constant verbal attacks and final cleansing of the temple, were quite enough for them to set their sights on his ultimate death. And they did. Now, the point of this cleansing was to show that Jesus cared about his Father's glory and the proper reverence in worship. And it is a fitting precursor to the time when he will judge the earth in righteousness and he will cleanse it. Hendrickson writes, The stern and holy Christ, the indignant, mighty Messiah, the messenger of the covenant of whom it is written, he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering of righteousness is not agreeable to those who want a soft, sweet Christ. But John's record here portrays those fiery zeal of Jesus when he came with sudden, such sudden and tremendous effectiveness that before this unknown man who had no further authority than his own person and word, this crowd of traitors and changers who thought they were in there fully within their rights when conducting their business in the temple court fled hastily like a lot of naughty boys. Jesus was out to restore reverence. If there's any group of people on the face of the earth that should understand this, it should be people like us. And that brings us to verse 18. So the Jews were the Jews saw this and they They didn't do anything to stop him because they couldn't stop him. He was fulfilling, he was fulfilling that which had been prophesied. And as the Son of God, no one would have been able to stop Jesus from what he did. And so the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And so this next part, verses 18 through 22 centers on the picture of Jesus' resurrection. So we shift from reverence now, which he has clearly shown, to resurrection. There is no greater proof that Jesus is the Messiah than the fact of the resurrection of Christ. Now, what is happening here is similar to what took place in Europe during the German occupation of World War II. People were not allowed to travel unless they could produce papers, giving them the authority to be going from one place to another. 
In similar fashion, the Jews are asking Jesus to show them the authority for what had just happened in the temple. Now that says several things. First, it says that the Jewish leaders held sway over the people. They could not and were not free people under the Jewish system. They were not free people under the Roman system. So much so that if a Jew were traveling somewhere and met a Roman soldier, a Roman soldier could compel them to carry his gear, his pack, for one mile. And they had no recourse to refuse. Those days will return at some point. And free nations that come under that kind of dictator-type leadership will be the last to fall for it. What these Jews really wanted was to see, they wanted to see the authority that the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, had given to Jesus to do what he did. That's what they wanted. Show us your papers. Show us the authority from us as to why you did these things. And yet their hard-heartedness could not and would not let them see what the unlearned common disciples had seen. They didn't see it. They were blind to it. Later, John would attest in chapter 12 that though Jesus had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. It wasn't just this one thing that they saw, which should have been enough. The disciples saw it. They remembered the scriptures. Would you not think that those who spend their life in the scriptures would remember these things? And yet they could not and would not remember it because they did not know him, nor did they believe in him as his disciples had done. And that's the difference. The unbelieving, the lost of the world cannot see and will not see because they have no capacity to see until God opens the blind eyes of their hearts and they see the truth that is in Jesus. It's no different today. People are still wanting proof of some kind that of what the Bible says about Jesus and salvation and the eternal destiny of man. They want proof. They want, they want you to give them some kind of, some kind of objective proof that you can show that these things are so. And many, if not most, want spectacular things, supernatural things before they'll believe. Abraham's message to the rich man in hell is the same Message of today, the message to the hard-hearted and unbelieving is the same 
now as it was then. And what was that message? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. That's how simple it is, folks. You don't have to prove anything. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to conjure up anything. You don't have to manipulate anything. You just say, here's what the scriptures say. And leave it at that. Because that's what God uses. He uses the word. We see it clearly in Luke 16. People will not believe even though profound signs are done. They will not believe as a result of those things. Even though there are many in our world that preach a gospel of miracles and yet there are no miracles, people become duped into thinking they've seen miracles. But even if they saw miracles, it would not cause them to believe. Listen to what he says. But Abraham said to the rich man, who, by the way, wanted one to come back from the dead and tell his five brothers not to come to this horrible place of torment. And what did Abraham say? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. And he said to them, to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If people refuse to believe what the word of God says, there's nothing that is going to change their minds beyond that. The irony here in this story is that all this sign-seeking was useless because they had the prophecies right before them in the Scriptures and they refused to believe them. It's no different than a person hearing the gospel message and then refusing to believe it, walking away from it. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. People always want more than what they need. It's part of, it's part of human life and the deception of the human heart. If one has the truth of God, that is all they need. The Jews should have remembered Malachi. They should have instantly remembered Malachi chapter 3. Listen to what it says. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. They should have remembered that scripture. And they should have connected the two. But their hard-heartedness and their desire for their own personal gain kept them from it. They did not remember and they did not want to remember because their guilt was heightened and their pride to resist was increased. 
And so they said to him, show us your papers. Give us a sign for your authority for doing these things. They were not interested in learning why or how he did those things. The question is a direct challenge to Jesus' authority. It was a knee-jerk reaction to his display of power. And they were feeling exposed and threatened because they knew the commercialization of the temple was wrong. They knew it was wrong. People know right from wrong. Don't let anybody fool you. Because... They're created in the image of God. They have these things written inside them. These Jews got angry and instead of admitting that they had let this happen and and making things right, their hardened pride challenged the Son of God. And this is exactly what people do today. You speak to someone about their sin... They get angry because they're trying to defend themselves and their pride wells up within them and they refuse to hear anymore. And the fact is they're not really angry at you, as Brother Dave said this morning. They're angry at God. When God exposes sin in our lives, our first reaction is to deny it, stiffen our necks, And become like these unrepentant Jews. So what we should do is we should humble ourselves. And fall on the mercy and grace of God. And repent. Repent. Admit our wrong. Confess it. And repent of it. Jesus offers them the greatest sign that could ever be put forth. It was the sign of life after death. It was resurrection. So he says to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Huh? Three days? Their human reasoning and ability could not compute this. No way they could understand this. Tear down this temple. They're looking around them at the stones and the inlay and the the carving of the pillars and and the marble and the... uh, You name it. They, They were looking at it from a human standpoint. And when human reasoning and ability encounter spiritual truth, human reasoning will always take the natural path rather than the heavenly path. We find the same thing in chapter 3 when Nicodemus was confronted with spiritual truth. You must be born again, Jesus said. And he said... Can a man enter into his mother's womb a second time? This is just physically impossible, Jesus. He was thinking humanly. 
We see it in chapter 4. Where the disciples had gone into the town and they returned and Jesus was talking with the woman at the well. And they said, he spoke of, of being the water of life and to her. And, and what did they, what did they say? Has he, has he found something to eat? We've got the food here. When did he, when did he have lunch? And he had to say to them, I have food you don't know anything about. It's, it's spiritual food. <clears throat> so the Jews, <coughs> the Jews did not hear the scriptures when, when, they, when they spoke. Now they do not hear the son and he speaks them face to face. They didn't hear the scriptures and now they don't hear Jesus. These two things go together. <clears throat> Their reply is purely human and seated in unbelief. The Jews then said, now get what they said. It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. Now this is uh there were, there were two temples. One was Solomon's temple. It was destroyed many years prior to this. This temple was called Herod's temple. Herod the Great built this temple. It, it began in 20 uh, B.C. And it is now 26 A.D. So 46 years have elapsed and the temple is still being built. In fact, it wasn't until 63 A.D. that the temple was actually completed. That's a total of 83 years. And the ironic thing is here that seven years later, Titus, the Roman general, entered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple... Tore it down. There was not one stone left sitting upon another. They burned the temple. And the extreme heat caused the gold inlays and overlays to melt and run between the cracks of the rocks. And out of greed, the Roman soldiers literally tore every rock apart to get at the gold. So that there was not one stone left. Upon another. Jesus, in fact, prophesied that this would happen. Luke chapter 19, verse 44. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. Speaking of the temple. You and your children within you. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. The destruction of this temple was a lesson in futility. The futility of connecting buildings to true worship. Many churches, church buildings have been torched, torn down, desecrated, blown up. That doesn't stop God's people from worshiping. True worship is not connected to this building. 
only in the sense that we gather here. And God has blessed us with a place to come each week and worship and and to hear His Word and sing together and pray and give and encourage each other. But this building could be gone tomorrow. But this church will carry on. It doesn't dictate our worship. Many great cathedrals, elaborate edifices have been built as places of worship, but God is not interested in externals. Not interested in externals. It's one of the things that I appreciated about when I went to the Masters, went to the Shepherds Conference a few years back there in California. That the buildings that they have there at Grace Church are nice, but they're they're not over the top. They're just ordinary brick buildings with, uh, they're nice, but they're not elaborate. Not like some places I've been in. He is interested, God is interested in His temple. He is interested in the hearts of His people because that's where His temple is. Hebrews 10, 16, This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts, not in their buildings, on their hearts. And I will write them on their minds. So why did Jesus refer to the Why did Jesus refer to the destruction of the temple or the temple being destroyed? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One was to illustrate his death and his resurrection. Without his death, his resurrection could not occur. Second, it was to show that worship that then existed would be replaced with true spiritual worship after His death and resurrection. Jesus was speaking of the temple of His body. This body of mine will be destroyed, but I'll raise it up again in three days. This is exactly what happened. Jesus died, rose, And ascended to heaven. And the inauguration of a new worship. And a new temple was instituted. Namely the church. It would be worship directed by the spirit of God. In a temple that belonged to the souls of men. And women. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3. Do you not know? That you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. I don't know how much plainer he can be. Second Corinthians 6. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? 
For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk in them and I will be their God and they will be my people. No mention of buildings. Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows grows what into a external building no into a holy temple in the lord in him you're being built built together as a dwelling place for god by the spirit the sign Of his resurrection and the life that it would give to all believers everywhere was a far greater sign than the tearing down of a building and its reconstruction. I want you to notice that he says in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. I'll do it. He needed no help from anyone to come back from the dead. I will raise it up. He would do it by his own power. This phrase, I will raise it up, speaks of the reconstruction of buildings and the the resuscitation of individuals. That's why he gives the sign of of Jonah. Matthew chapter turn to Matthew chapter 12. The sign of Jonah was a sign of resurrection. Now you remember the story. Jonah was running from God on his way to Tarshish and Storm came up. He said, I'm the reason for the storm. And they cast him into the sea. And what happened? A giant fish swallowed him up. I believe, I believe Jonah died in the belly of the fish. I believe he was dead. Because it is a picture, a type Of the death and resurrection of Christ. Notice Matthew 12. Look at verse 39 and 40. So you have the picture in Jonah of death, burial, resurrection. Jonah dies. He's buried in the sea in the fish's belly. And then he is regurgitated and alive on the shore. Verse 38. But he answered them. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And nobody had to grab hold of Jesus 
and send him to the cross or compel him to go to the cross. He gave himself willingly to the cross. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, he said. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. When a life is taken and destroyed, it never comes back again. Death is final. But his boast was, take my life and I'll come back again. Something that has never happened. Something that has never happened by the act of one's own will. Happened to a few by the act of a will not their own. but never by one's own will. If that promise, now understand this, if that promise that Jesus made, saying that I'm going to give my life, and they're going to take it from me, they're going to destroy it, but I'm going to come back again. If he made that promise and it was kept, then when Jesus says in John 14, I'm going away to prepare a place for you, and if I go away, I'll come again. We can bank on the fact, based upon the resurrection of Christ from the dead, that if he says he's coming back, he's going to come back. His disciples did not understand this saying at first. As with many of the sayings of the Lord, they were perplexed. They were as perplexed as the Jews Thinking humanly. This lack of understanding followed them. And they were confronted with spiritual truths many times. And then they only saw the physical side of things. The human side of things. John chapter 12 verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified. They remembered that these things had been written about him. And had been done to him, I want you to notice, had been written about him. Had the Jews read and studied the scriptures with believing hearts, they would have seen that the temple, with all its workings, was only types of the one who would come with the real salvation. They would have seen that. After the Lord's resurrection, his disciples remembered. That he had said that he would rise in three days. They didn't understand it. He had told them many times. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die there. And I'm going to rise again. I'm going to come back. Over and over he told them this. And they just didn't get it. Even after he had died on the cross. Where are they? They're holed up in a room somewhere. Afraid. For their lives. And after this, after his resurrection, they remembered and they believed. How slow we are. How slow we are to remember and, and believe what the scriptures have said. 
We're all slow. Sometimes worse than others. Now to emphasize how important the scriptures are in this passage, notice in verse 17 that it begins with the scriptures. This whole scenario after the cleansing of the temple begins with the scriptures in verse 17 and ends with the scriptures in verse 22. Therefore, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they what? They believed the scriptures. They believed the scriptures. The disciples were probably remembering Psalm 16 verses 8 through 11, which says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Listen now. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. They were probably remembering that scripture. Which said of the Messiah that God would not leave him in the grave. That he would not see corruption like other bodies who die. He would come back again. And be raised. This was the psalm Peter referred to in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. It was also stated by Paul in Acts 13, verse 35, when they went to Paphos. Why? Why why did Peter and Paul use this passage from, from Psalm 16? Because the resurrection of Jesus is a clear indication of his deity. The resurrection of Jesus proves that he is who he said he was. The son of the father. The second person of the trinity. Very God in the flesh. No one has ever risen from the dead. By their own power. Except Jesus. He is God. If he were not God in the flesh, he could not have raised himself from the dead any more than you or I could raise ourselves from the dead. And that's why the scriptures are so important. Because it is in the scriptures that we have the truth of who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and what Jesus will do. In the future. Is he your God? Is he your savior? Are you in love. With the second person. Of the trinity. I certainly hope so. Let's pray. Father we do thank you. For this Lord's day. And for the ministry of the scriptures the word of God and we pray that you would use them to speak to hearts and to show us show us the father by seeing the son he is our lord our savior our sovereign our king our potentate 
our, our friend, the friend of sinners, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This we pray in his name. Amen.